Well, let's pray together, ask the Lord to bless our time together this evening. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of being together. We thank you for the means that you have supplied to us that allows us to come together, to take time away from normal responsibilities, to give attention to important matters in the light of your word. And we want to do that tonight, and we know that if we are going to benefit tonight, it'll be because your spirit takes your word, causes us to think rightly from your word to our lives, especially about this issue that has been increasingly prominent in discussions about Christian nationalism. Lord, we, we want to honor you. We want to be faithful to you. We, we want to be people who see what you say in the scripture, are unashamed of it, believe it, declare it, stake our lives on it for the glory of our King, our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus. So to that end, draw near and help us tonight, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Juliet said, lamenting the fact that her lover's name was held in derision because of his family, because of the associations that were brought to bear upon it. And I've been thinking about that question a lot the last several months as I've anticipated this conference and as I've tried to wrap my own mind around Christian nationalism. Because Christian nationalism is a phrase that seems to be bantied about by those who tend to be strongly for it or strongly against it. In fact, it seems like that most people who are aware of it and are talking about it have their minds pretty well made up as to what they think about it and that they're primarily concerned about gathering more evidence to justify the opinions that they already hold. But in the circles that I run in and the folks that I associate most closely with, I would say that there's not been strong opposition or advocacy of this idea. And partly the reason for that is because it's hard to define. It's a word that has been used and misused by many in their effort to further their own considerations, their own concerns about what Christianity ought to be, what the nation ought to be. There's a big difference between what Christian nationalism is and how the term is used. And that point has been driven home to me multiple times, but especially over this last year, as I've had people both condemn me and commend me for my stance on Christian nationalism. And that's without me ever identifying myself as a Christian nationalist. In fact, when we announced the theme of this conference and said, we're going to have a conference on Christian nationalism. We didn't say good, bad, indifferent. Just announced the theme. Immediately, I started getting feedback to finally... We're glad you're declaring yourself to be one of us as a Christian nationalist. And, oh no, I can't believe they got to you and they have convinced you of this horrible idea of Christian nationalism. Well, tonight I hope to at least um, set the agenda in terms of my own thinking on this and hope to be helpful to others who are trying to think through it as well. What both of those reactions indicate is that we need to be careful about definitions. If we're going to make any headway in trying to understand this and to think rightly about it from a Christian perspective, we're going to have to be careful 
to know what we're talking about. And just as importantly, to try to know what we're not talking about. Beyond that, we're going to need to be alert to many of the associations that have attached themselves to this phrase. So what I propose to do tonight is to ask three questions. The first question is, what is Christian nationalism? And then the second question is, how is it used? And then thirdly, what should Christians think about Christian nationalism? So let's start off with what is Christian nationalism? There's no shortage of proposed definitions to this phrase. Uh, there are ideas that have been packed into the phrase Christian nationalism. Stephen Wolfe has written a very uh, important and popular book recently in which he suggests that the phrase Christian nationalism is a plastic word. It's a word that doesn't really have any significant identifiable meaning, but it's used to connote all kinds of ideas, primarily things that are bad, so that folks can use it and attach it to people that they want to marginalize or demonize. Well, there are several definitions that I've come across in my own reading and studying and thinking about this, and I want to give you some of them, not because I think they're accurate, but because it helps to understand these definitions as we think about what's going on in this momentary discussion we're having about Christian nationalism at this time. So the first one is by Kristen, Kristen Dumay, who is a professor of history at Calvin University. She's the author of Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Divided a Nation. You might guess that she's not a very big fan of Christian nationalism. She says that it's the belief that America is God's chosen nation and must be defended as such. So that's the definition she operates off of in her book. Another is by Dr. David W. Scott, who's a United Methodist Church historical researcher. He says, American Christian nationalism has tried to define the United States as a native white Protestant nation and exclude all others, Catholics, African Americans, indigenous peoples, immigrants, Jews, Muslims, etc., Shane Claiborne is the co-editor of Red Letter Christians and the author of the book, Jesus for President. And he defines Christian nationalism as a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. A confusing perversion of the gospel of Christ. It uses the language of our faith and the symbols of our faith, but betrays the heart of our faith. It uses Jesus as a mascot to disguise racism, xenophobia, and hatred. Well, Michael Horton, who's not like these others, he's an Orthodox, mostly trustworthy Christian from Westminster Theological Seminary, agrees that Christian nationalism is a threat to Christianity. He says, patriotism is saying that America, or whatever your country is, is special to you. I think nationalism is saying America is special to God. It's part of his plan, not just his providence, but part of the outworking almost of a redemptive history. America's a redeemer nation. Well, to those who offer these and similar types of definitions of Christian nationalism, I want to simply respond by saying, if that's Christian nationalism, you're right. It's evil. It's horrible. And Christians should have nothing to do with it. But that kind of exchange doesn't really further our understanding in trying to know 
what is at stake, what issues are at stake in this broader concern that has given rise to the consideration of Christian nationalism. I am a paleo-Calvinist. By that I mean that I was a Calvinist decades before the young restless reform movement took ground and new Calvinism began to spring up. And because of that, I can recall decades ago before Calvinism became cool and not many people knew about it or understood it, certainly not as many as do today, folks would come up to me and say, are you a Calvinist? And my response always, well, what do you mean by that? I say, well, somebody that uh, believes that God creates people to condemn them and he doesn't give folks a chance to get saved and all the babies who die go to hell and you don't believe in evangelism or missions. And inevitably, my response was, no, I'm not a Calvinist, (laughs) if that's your understanding of Calvinism. Because to buy into that thinking doesn't do anything except to perpetuate a caricature of something that isn't substantive and isn't significant. Well, in a similar way, then, I see what's going on in Christian nationalism needing the same kind of care and response. In order to have a productive consideration of this issue, we need to frame it properly, which means we at least need some general agreement about that which we are discussing. So with that in mind, I'd like to propose for my purpose tonight a definition that has found approval by a strong advocate of Christian nationalism as well as a strong opponent of Christian nationalism. But before I do that, let me give to you Stephen Wolfe's definition that I'm not going to use, but has some things to commend it, at least in the broader context of what's being discussed among evangelicals today. Uh, Stephen Wolfe has just released in the last few months this book called The Case for Christian Nationalism. And in that book, he defines what he means by the term this way. Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. Now, I think that this book is helpful in furthering the debate, the discussion, trying to come to grips with issues involved in this topic. And I think he offers some worthwhile proposals in the book as well. However, I find some real challenges with this definition that is not going to make it useful to me in trying to further discuss this. One of the challenges is how do you determine what constitutes a Christian nation? And Wolf in the book says it's analogous to a Christian man. And yet that analogy can only be maintained so far before it becomes useless. Because a person becomes a Christian man by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, repenting of sin and trusting Jesus. And when you do that, you are a Christian. But that gospel that is received by grace through faith must be received by individual people. And so there is a difference between saying, I am a Christian man because I've been born of God's spirit. I trust Jesus Christ savingly, and that is a Christian nation. And Wolf builds a lot of his arguments off of that analogy that I think breaks down too quickly. So the definition I want to use has been articulated by Paul Miller, who is a professor of international affairs at Georgetown Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. And he writes this in his book, 
religion of American greatness, what's wrong with Christian nationalism? He gives a definition um, that has been touted or, or utilized by William Wolfe, not to be confused with Stephen Wolfe, no relationship. William's with us tonight. He's going to be a part of the uh, panel dialogue later on in the evening. But William Wolfe takes Paul Miller's definition and says, I think this is a good, useful definition. Paul Miller gives the definition as an opponent to Christian nationalism. William Wolfe has affirmed it as one who thinks this is a right and good thing for us to be identified as. Miller is also has been a research fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. And as a critic who thinks this is a bad idea, he says, Christian nationalism asserts that there is something identifiable as an American nation, distinct from other nations. That American nationhood is and should remain defined by Christianity or Christian cultural norms. And that the American people and their government should actively work to defend, sustain, and cultivate America's Christian culture, heritage, and values. Now, again, I think that this is a definition that is worth considering. A definition that we can look at and think about more carefully. There are three parts to this definition. First, he says there is a distinct American nation. Now, there shouldn't be much argument about this, though trying to come up with a simple definition of what constitutes a nation may not be as easy as you would think, especially as you engage people that are trying to debate this particular issue. But separate nations do exist. And whether you believe they would have existed apart from the fall or not, there's no denying that the Bible recognizes geopolitical entities known as nations. And certainly, you just read Genesis 10 and 11. If there were nothing else in the Bible, you would have to be convinced by that. And because the Bible recognizes the legitimacy of nations with borders, in that sense, I'm a nationalist. I believe in nations. I think they're good things. I don't think they're things that we should lament. A second part of the definition is this. The American nation is defined by Christian cultural norms and should remain that way. Well, until maybe the last 60 or 75 years or so in America, the first part of that statement was largely taken for granted. American, America is a nation that has been defined by Christian cultural norms. So everybody understood that. Most people accepted it, some celebrated it. But over the last few decades, that's become a hotly debated and disputed matter. There are many instances in our history, however, that demonstrate this was once just common ways of thinking about our nation. Perhaps one of the most famous statements that's ever been made on this point was by the Supreme Court Justice David Brewer in his writing an opinion on the 1892 court case, the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States. And the Supreme Court Justice Brewer put this in his opinion. Christianity, general Christianity, is and always has been a part of the common law. Not Christianity with an established church, but Christianity with liberty of conscience to all men. And then he goes on after this and he gives a litany of laws and official practices in the United States 
that are of Christian origin. And then he cites the existence of so many Christian churches in the United States and Christian organizations and, quote, the gigantic missionary associations with general support and aiming to establish Christian missions in every quarter of the globe. All of this, he says, is evidence that, of course, America is a Christian nation. After this, Justice Brewer concludes with a sweeping statement. Listen to this. He writes, These and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume to a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. And later on, after that, he wrote this. We constantly speak of this republic as a Christian nation. In fact, as the leading Christian nation of the world. So whether people believe that or not today... It once was commonly believed, so much so that a Supreme Court justice could write it into an opinion of the court without any fear of people um, getting upset by that. Well, the third part of Miller's definition that individual Americans and the United States government should work to defend and promote Americans' Christian culture, heritage, and values is where the rub comes in. What does it mean to promote these things, to work and to defend these things in what way should the government do this and can the government do it without violating the establishment clause of the first amendment of the constitution which says congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion well miller thinks that can't be done and so in his definition he sets it out there with this determination see this is this is an impossibility I think it can be done. In fact, I'm convinced it has been done historically throughout the United States. A good example would be the words of Justice Brewer that I just read. He said these things about America being the leading Christian nation in the world as a Supreme Court justice, which I think means that we could have reasonable assumption that he was familiar with and understood the First Amendment. And yet... He had no qualms about speaking of America the way he did. So this is my working definition of Christian nationalism in the American context. America has been and should remain identified by Christian cultural norms. And American people and their government should actively work to defend, sustain, and cultivate America's Christian culture, heritage, and values. Well, if that's acceptable as a definition as to what Christian nationalism means what it is, how's it been used? Well, the way that I've seen it used time and again by those who are opposed to it and afraid of it is as a boogeyman, as something to hold up as scary and as dangerous to intimidate people away from it. Again, listen to Michael Horton. Christian nationalism is a Christian heresy. It is therefore an internal threat both to the message and the witness of the church. Well, those are strong words. If you respect Michael Horton and he tells you something's a heresy and a threat to the church, well, you're not going to want to be associated with that in any sense. Well, if you give Michael Horton his definition of Christian nationalism, the belief that America is special to God and is a redeemer nation, then I can accept his warning and say, okay, 
Yeah, that is wrong-headed thinking, and that is dangerous to the people who have been stewarded with the gospel. Again, the problem is in the way that Christian nationalism is used in his critique of it. In August of 2021, Indiana University sponsored an online mini-conference entitled White Christian Nationalism in the United States. The conference featured speakers like Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry and Kristen DeMay and Jamar Tisby. One panel discussion from the conference was characterized as warning against the attempt of, quote, white Christian nationalists trying to destabilize democracy. And we've heard this quite a bit since January 6th, two years ago, and the charges were made of the, there was an attempt under the name of Christian nationalism to overthrow the United States of America. Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry sound the same alarm in their book entitled The Flag Plus the Cross, White Christian Nationalism and the Threat to American Democracy. They contend, quote, white Christian nationalism has animated the oppression, exclusion, and even extermination of minority groups while securing privilege for white Protestants. Russell Moore, in Christianity Today, wrote, Christian nationalism is a liberation theology for white people. Amanda Tyler, who's the executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, says, I believe that the single biggest threat to religious freedom in the United States today is Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is antithetical to the constitutional ideal that belonging in American society is not predicated on what faith one practices or whether someone is religious at all. The political ideology that seeks to merge American and Christian identities is deeply embedded in American society and manifests itself in a number of different ways, some more obviously harmful than others. Well, in their book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry define it this way. It's a cultural framework, a collection of myths, traditions, symbols, narratives, and value systems that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. And then they quickly add this, that by Christianity, they're not referring to, quote, all expressions of orthodox Christian theology. Rather, the Christianity of Christian nationalism represents something more than religion. It includes assumptions of nativism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and heteronormativity, along with divine sanction for authoritarian control and militarism. It is as ethnic and political as it is religious. Do you see what they've done with their definition? They've taken this phrase and infused it with odious ideologies of white supremacy and nativism. They've used cultural scare words, militarism, patriarchy, heteronormativity, and they've set up the term as a moral albatross to hang around the neck of any Christian who does not acquiesce to their terms and their agendas. But think about all that they're smuggling into their definition White supremacy. I mean, what's more onerous than that in our day? 
the idea that white people are superior to those of other races or ethnicities and believing that white people should dominate those of other ethnicities or races. Nativism, which is often used as a, a synonym for xenophobia, just a, an opposition or hatred or fear of other types of people. It's the idea that established inhabitants of a place should be given special treatment, often even to the mistreatment of immigrants. Well, who wants to be guilty of that? If that's what the scholars are saying, then why in the world would you even give a second thought to looking into Christian nationalism? And what are the assumptions of heteronormativity that they put in their definition? I'll tell you what they are. They're the belief that God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. It's the belief that what Paul writes in Romans 1 is true. That for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's the heteronormativity. Normalizing heterosexuality as if that is somehow right or better than other types. Can't even say homosexuality alone now because there are so many other variants of that. Well, what's going on here? with the way that Christian nationalism is being used, both by those outside the circles of Christianity, but more particularly by those inside those circles. Well, I have a theory. I believe that those who are defending critical race theory and intersectionality a few years ago have recognized that continuing on that path is a losing proposition that they're never going to win and so they've shifted gears to make a boogeyman out of Christian nationalism. And they do that by accusing anyone who disagrees with their progressivist agenda as promoting Christian nationalism. Now think about it. A few years ago, our cultural and religious betters were telling us that critical race theory and intersectionality are useful analytical tools. And we just need to get with the program and get out of our old ways of thinking and recognize that these are good things for us to employ in the church, in the work of the gospel. To speak against CRT or intersectionality several years ago was inevitably to set yourself up to be called a racist, to be called a tinfoil hat conspiracy nut. But as the light continued to be shined on these ideologies and the true nature of them began to come to light, religious elitists began to shift their response to it. They went from, well, these are good analytical tools, to begin saying, nobody really understands critical race theory. It's an academic discipline. And you little people just can't understand it. And so you're complaining about something that is far too complex for mere commoners to understand. But as more and more books were written, Podcasts, documentaries like By What Standard were released. The response from our betters changed again from 
this is an academic discipline you can't understand, to CRT is not an issue. And besides, no evangelical colleges or seminaries are promoting it. Hoping that we would just simply look away and believe what they're saying. Well, as the evidence continued to mount to disprove those denials, cultural and religious gatekeepers shifted from being on the defensive and they went on the attack. And they made a hard pivot and began to warn against Christian nationalism, especially after the events of January 6th. They say that this is the most serious threat facing Christianity in the nation today. And if you'll notice, those who were sounding the alarm against Marxist ideologies and were accused of being ignorant conspiracy theorists back then are the same people now who are being accused of being Christian nationalists by those same failed evangelical leaders and their allies who actually advocated for Marxian ideas or at least became complicit in allowing them to be ushered into evangelical circles. So how is... Christian nationalism being used. It's being used as a scarlet letter to brand any Christian who is unwilling to stay silent in the face of state-sponsored wickedness that is being established throughout our nation. It's also, needs to be said, that Christian nationalism has been a cover, is a cover, for some really bad ideas. So the critics, most of those who are using this as something to... um, ward off those who would contend that there are bad things going on that need to be corrected inside the church and outside the church. That's one misuse of it. But I want to acknowledge as well, on the other side, there are those who identify as Christian nationalists who are guilty of some really bad thinking. Most notably, the idea that America has some kind of special relationship with God that is above that of other nations. And these kinds of sentiments have been with us since our founding as a nation, quite honestly. Uh, In colonial times, there was an idea that was pretty current among many that America was ordained by God for a special role in history, even to bring in latter-day glory. We see, for example, in Samuel Danforth's famous 1670 sermon entitled, A Brief Recognition of New England's Errand into the Wilderness, that he admonishes his fellow Massachusetts Bay colonists to repent of their backsliding and reminds them of the reason that they embarked at great cost and risk on their errand into the wilderness of America to establish in it the true worship of God in a way that their consciences would be free. Even Jonathan Edwards, the post-millennialist of the 18th century, greatest theologian America has ever produced, His post-millennialism led him to believe that America had a special role to play in the fulfillment of the latter-day glory that would usher in the kingdom of Christ. Today, the Christian Broadcasting Network has regularly promoted the idea that America is a nation in covenant with God. And they cite and promote authors like Douglas Sheets, who takes the written covenants of early colonial settlers that they would write out as their own covenant before God, And they would use these as evidence that America is in covenant with God because early settlers wrote covenants with God. Or even more contemporarily and prominently, there are political leaders like Lauren Boebert, the Colorado congresswoman, who said back in September of last year, quote, 
I believe that there have been two nations that have been created to glorify God. Israel, whom we bless, and the United States of America. While I might agree with many of Bobert's political policies, I don't want the folks in my church to get their theology from a politician like that. Well, what should Christians think about Christian nationalism? I have some suggestions. One, we should recognize the play that is being run by progressives and leftists in how the debate about Christian nationalism is being framed. Russ Vogt has identified this as succinctly as anything that I've come across in a March 2022 Newsweek article. He writes this, A pattern has emerged. An academic, often from a theologically liberal persuasion, paints a caricature of Christian nationalism that is clearly outside the lines of Orthodox Christianity. Celebrity pastors and writers then point to that distorted definition label any related viewpoints as heresy and call for all evangelicals to practice discernment or to repent of political idolatry. I think that's exactly what's going on. Time and again, we've seen it even in the quotes that I've set before you this evening. If you were to take them and put them in a uh, historical context of how the academics make the statement, the evangelical elitists come and use that and then begin to intimidate people away from even seriously considering the issues at stake in this discussion. So don't let such tactics prevent you from engaging this debate thoughtfully. I would encourage you that if this is something that comes up in your circles and folks ask you if you're for or against Christian nationalism, ask them what they mean. Get a definition before you before you buy into, inadvertently perhaps, their own thinking. Ask them what they mean by saying America is not a Christian nation or what they mean by Christian values should not be promoted by government officials or even individual Christians. Ask about the research methods of some of these uh, proposals that demonstrate the dangers of Christian nationalism. For example, in Whitehead and Perry's book, Taking America Back for God, they divide Americans into four categories, four groups relative to Christian nationalism. The rejectors, the resistors, the accommodators, and the ambassadors. And they do this on the basis of six questions that are six statements that were put out through a Baylor research effort that um, the how depending on how strongly you agreed with them or disagreed with them would position you in one of those four categories. Let me just give you a couple of the statements. The federal government should advocate Christian values. Do you believe that? I hope so. Thou shalt not murder is a Christian value. I want them promoting that. Well, if you strongly agree with that, that's a clear marker that you are over here as an ambassador for Christian nationalism. Here's another one of the six statements. The success of the United States is part of God's plan. I'm a Calvinist. Of course it's a part of God's plan, right? I mean, that's what providence is about. It doesn't mean there's a special covenantal relationship with America. So question the research methodologies that are employed to promote these uh, imposing types of arguments. Don't be intimidated into silence, or worse yet, into becoming complicit in the evils of this age by going along with the agendas set by wicked people. So, don't subtly be compelled into calling men women, or women men. Refuse to call drag queen story hour 
something that is good and educational for children. But be willing to call it what it is. Child abuse. Sexual grooming of children. Don't follow Christian leaders who have failed in the battle to understand our times in which we live and to stand for Christ and His righteousness. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about men like Russell Moore, and David French, and Tim Keller. I mean, love them. Thank God for every good thing they've ever done. And all of these men have done some good things. And I've benefited from all of them at different times. But be willing to evaluate their actions and inactions by the word of God. And I would just plead with you that in these areas that are under consideration tonight, do not follow their lead. They're not trustworthy leaders. Understand and learn history. Both American history and Christian history, including Baptist history, has much to help us to, to shed light upon the issues that we are grappling with here. So, for example, American history. In colonial America, all of the 13 colonies acknowledged Christianity as truth in some form. Even those that did not have an established religion had the presupposition, the understanding, the starting point that Christianity was true. Even Rhode Island had that. And then the post-colonial era as well. We could spend the rest of the night just going through quotes by respected American leaders in history. I'm just going to give you a few of them. John Jay, who was the first chief justice of the Supreme Court from 1789 to 1795, said this, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers, and it is the duty of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Supreme Court Justice Chief said that. Or John Adams, the first vice president and second president of the United States, famously said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And we're beginning to see that. In 1954, the year that the Pledge of Allegiance was amended to include one nation under God, Chief Justice Earl Warren said this, I believe no one can read the history of our country without realizing that the good book, he meant the Bible, and the spirit of our Savior, he meant Jesus, have from the beginning been our guiding geniuses. Whether we look to the first charter of Virginia or to the charter of New England or the charter of Massachusetts Bay or to the fundamental orders of Connecticut, the same objective is present. A Christian land governed by Christian principles. I believe the entire Bill of Rights came into being because of the knowledge of our forefathers that they had of the Bible and their belief in it. Freedom of belief, of expression, of assembly, of petition, the dignity of the individual, the sanctity of the home, equal justice under the law, and the reservation of powers to the people. I like to believe we are living today in the spirit of the Christian religion. I like also to believe that as long as we do so, no great harm can come to this country. American history has much to say on the contemporary debates. It doesn't mean that they were right just because they are in our historical background. But it does mean that those that were prominent, well understood, and, and widely accepted when they speak on these issues, we at least ought to have the courtesy and humility to listen to them and to try to discern what is it 
that they saw, that they understood, that they assumed that perhaps we no longer do. But study Christian history. This is where I think the great value in Stephen Wolf's book on Christian nationalism uh, can be of use to us because he has retrieved so much of Protestant political theology, uh, things that I've never seen before myself, and maybe most of you or many of you may have, but, but he's documented so much in his footnotes that it's well worth time and energy to look through that and just say, okay, Protestant Christians and Protestant movements have indeed affirmed certain things politically in our past. But I'm a Baptist, unashamedly so. And so I would say that we definitely need to look into our Baptist history, specifically our confessional history, because I think a lot of it's been assumed. A lot of it has been kind of overlooked over the last 100 or 200 years or so. Take, for example, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was the most widely used confession in America in those early decades before and after our founding as a nation. Chapter 19, first paragraph. Just listen to this. We, we kind of skate over it, but it, it warrants slowing down and considering the care with which this statement is made. Civil magistrates being set up by God for the ends aforesaid, the purposes that God created them, Subjection in all lawful things commanded by them ought to be yielded by us in the Lord. We ought to be subject to civil authorities. We heard that over the last three, four years during the COVID difficulties. Our betters were telling us the government says you can't meet, you can't meet. Government says you got to wear a mask, you got to wear a mask. Government says you got to do because Romans 13. And it's just assumed everybody agreed with what that said. And very often, this type of language would be appealed to from our heritage. But listen to it again. Listen to it again. Given the reality that God has ordained civil magistrates for specific purposes, Christians ought to be subject to them, everything commanded by them, in all lawful things. Hmm. What does that say? There is a law higher than civil magistrates. We are to obey them in everything lawful. And whenever they begin to command things contrary to what God has said is right and good and true, well, we know that we are to be civilly disobedient. But this phrase indicates we ought to be thinking even more critically and carefully about things that the civil magistrate might try to command that he has no authority from Christ to command. Command the people of God not to gather. Tell them how they can gather. Tell them if they can sing, how much they can sing. Who do these people think they are? I mean, they are magistrates that have had Authority delegated to them from the supreme authority of the whole universe. I think you find that in our confession of faith. Or consider what John Gill had to say about this. John Gill was the most famous Baptist of his day and for generations after. The first Baptist to write a systematic theology. Wrote a commentary on the complete Bible. He, he published an unimaginable amount for the 18th century. He was called Dr. Voluminous. <laughs> he just kept producing things. Augustus Toplady predicted right after Gill's death that while true religion and sound learning have a single friend remaining in the British Empire, the works and name of Gill will be precious and revered. But what did 
Mr. Baptist. What did John Gill say about this? Speaking of civil magistrates, he writes in his body of divinity, the massive work, complete body of doctrinal and practical divinity. He writes this, civil magistrates are to discountenance and suppress impiety and irreligion and to countenance and encourage religion and virtue. It's a Baptist saying that. He goes on in the same section. Kings are the guardians of the laws of God and man. And Christian kings have a peculiar concern with the laws of the two tables that they are observed and their violators, the violators of them punished. As sins against the first table, idolatry, worshiping of more gods than one, of graven images, blaspheming the name of God, perjury, false swearing, profanation of the day of worship, and those against the second table as disobedience to parents, murder, adultery, theft, bearing false witness, and so forth. Most of which, under the former dispensation, were capital crimes. Talking about Old Testament economy. Punishable even with death. And though the punishment of them, at least not all of them, may not be inflicted with that rigor now as then, yet they are punishable in some way or another, which is the duty of magistrates to take care of. That's John Gill. That's a Baptist. Now, that doesn't mean he was right. He could be wrong. But if we are concerned about our Baptist perspectives, which I am, one of my problems with Stephen Wolf's book is he doesn't do exposition. He tells us he's not going to, but he gives us the Protestant reformed uh, theological statements that were critiqued by Baptists. And we ought to be willing to critique each other on the word of God. But here is a foremost early Baptist theologian. And to my knowledge, no Baptist in Gill's day or shortly thereafter, I, I can be proven wrong on this, but I've seen nothing from anyone of any note that took exception to what Gill said. Now, that doesn't mean that all the Baptists believed it just that way. But it at least ought to be factored into our thinking today about this. Well, here's another recommendation I have. Recognize the myth of neutrality. The myth of a secular state. There's a difference between pluralism as a fact, as a result of constitutional republic based on Christian worldview, religious freedom, toleration. There's a difference between that and pluralism as an ideology, which says all religious beliefs and practices are equally valid. Secularism... Progressivism is a religion. Secularism would deceive us into believing that it's the only alternative to religious establishment. And therefore, for the nation to have true freedom and religious tolerance, it must be secular. More and more Christians have been duped into believing this lie. Listen to what David French says. Quote, there are going to be drag queen story hours. They are going to happen. And by the way, the fact that a person can get a room in a library and hold a drag queen story hour and get people to come, that's one of the blessings of liberty. The blessings of liberty? Drag queen story hours ought to be outlawed. Those who participate in them and promote them ought to be arrested for child abuse. Indeed, they would have been arrested for child abuse 100 years ago. You couldn't do that to little kids. I like what my friend Burke Parsons has written on this. He says, secularism is the belief that man does not need God or God's laws in man's social, governmental, educational, or economic affairs. Ironically, 
Secularism rejects religion, yet itself is a religion. In these United States of America, many of our politicians, courts, schools, and businesses embrace and promote the religion of secularism under the rubric of freedom from religion and by the advancement of human autonomy, which inevitably leads to anarchy. Another recommendation. Remember the mission of the church. The Church of Jesus Christ is not a political action committee. No local church is. We are not called as a church to establish Christian governments. We are called to make disciples. We've been given a clear commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We are to go make disciples under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He has all authority. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the most political statement you could ever make. All other authority comes from him. Read Psalm 2. We, just, we need to reorient our thinking that God is the one who's created this and all human authority has legitimate authority because it's been delegated by God who's absolute authority. I mean, I, I, do, I believe in the separation of church and state. I do not believe in the separation of God and state. That's impossible. It's God's state. How do we do this work of making disciples? We do it by preaching God's law and God's gospel. The work of the Great Commission is not completed until Christ's disciples observe all the commandments of our King. The end result will be, when that takes place, under God's blessing, Christian-shaped homes, jobs, cultures, societies, and yes, even nations. One final thing I want to recommend is that we need to recognize that loving our neighbors includes more than doing individual acts of kindness. It includes working for them to have the kind of society to live in that you want to live in. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 says, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all in their high positions, that, they may, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Well, if we're to pray with the hope that we can live a quiet, peaceful, dignified life, shouldn't we work for that as well? I mean, isn't it presumptuous to pray for that which we're not willing to work for? We should want just laws. We should want righteousness. Righteousness exalts the nation, Proverbs says. If we want that for ourselves, shouldn't we want it for our neighbors? Well, yes, we should. As a result, as Christians, we should engage in legitimate activities to influence our culture and society to be good. All this means that in a nation that was founded on a Christian worldview and biblical principles, neighbor love should also include, going back to our definition, actively working to defend and sustain and cultivate America's Christian culture, heritage, and values. If pressing that agenda makes me a Christian nationalist, so be it. Thank you. Thank you.